This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on the show. And one of our favorite subjects is family. And today you're in for a treat. John and Brody Coyle join us. Both of these guys played for the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide. And I'm going to, well, I'm going to put aside our personal differences because we're broadcasting from Ole Miss uh, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and they're an arch rival. John was the father. He played for Bear Bryant back in the 70s, won a national championship, could have gone into the NFL, but he didn't. He started the Big Oak Ranch, and he takes in kids there that their parents don't want or just can't raise. And over the years, well, he's taking care of 2,000 kids. Right now, they're taking care of 140 at the Big Oak Ranch. John Coral's son, well, he was raised at this ranch, and he ended up going to Alabama and being the star quarterback and ended up playing in the NFL. And you won't believe this, young Brody Coral is now back at that ranch living, even after his NFL career and his really great career as a real estate developer. Thank you guys both for joining us. John, I want to start with you. I want to talk about where you were born. Tell us a little bit about your parents and your early life. Uh, i tell you what, I was very, very blessed. I had a great mom and dad. And uh, my dad uh, grew up really tough. As a matter of fact, uh, Brody and I talked, and my daughter and my wife, about if there had been a Big Oak Ranch for uh, children needing a chance, my dad would have qualified because he just had a dysfunctional family, to say the least. And he looked at me when I was in the little bassinet, and he made a promise to me. He said, I will never miss a game you play. And his dad never saw him play, and he played little uh, minor league semi-pro baseball, and uh, his dad never saw him play his whole career. And that being said, uh, he kept his promise, with the exception of one time when there was a death in the family and he had to go take care of business. Other than that, he was always there, whether we were in Los Angeles or Dallas or all over the southeast uh, playing for Coach Bryant. Uh, he was always there, and um, they uh, they loved me. I mean, I, I wish I could make it complicated, but uh, I was their life, and they made sure that when everybody else was being stupid that he wasn't going to let me. And um, he was a little of a guy, 5'11 guy from New York, but uh, I, I was afraid of him. I mean, even when I was a lot bigger than him, uh, he looked at me once. He said, it, it, you know, you're bigger, stronger, faster. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, it don't take big, strong, and fast to pull a trigger. And uh, that kind of cleared the air of confusion. And so uh, I had great parents. I was blessed. And, and your parents instilled certain values, uh, John, in you, I think, deep. Uh, talk about some of those. Talk about uh, faith in your family and what role that played, what it instilled in you and your life and your choices, John. Uh, my parents carried me to church every weekend. I mean, we we didn't miss a Sunday. And uh, I got to just witness him working, for example, working with youth groups. And I would see my dad take $10 and go buy a kid a glove because that kid's dad wouldn't or couldn't. And I just watched that my whole life, and that's one of the things we talk about as a family is that there's many things I do that now Brody does that we both learn from my dad. And, uh, like, you know, just uh, courtesy, and there's no excuse for rudeness, and there's no substitute for just being courteous to people. Be nice. And uh, that's one of the things I admire about my dad and Brody, too, is uh, I've, I've never seen Brody be rude to anyone that wanted an autograph or a picture. He's always been very kind about that, and we both learned it from my dad. And I would assume that your dad taught you a little bit about work, too, John. Talk about that. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. He said, uh, when, he, when I was little, he said, 
don't do it if you're going to do it half-baked. Uh, but he didn't say baked. And uh, yeah. we have uh, applied that now to our lives, and uh, that's one thing that's really neat is, is when people come to the ranch, they see um, quality without extravagance. And uh, we think if you're going to do it, just do it right, build it to last, and because uh, it's going to wear your name and our family's name. And uh, that's one of the things I learned from him, <laughs> and uh, now our, our grandchildren learn that from their dads. And you had another male role model, and I want to talk briefly about him now, John, for about a minute. And then, Brody, we're going to talk a bit about uh, this role model and this mentor, too. And his name was Bear Bryant. And, John, just for about a, a minute or two, talk about some of the things that you and the boys who played for Bear learned from him off the grid, off the X's and O's, off the football field. Uh, what did you learn from him, and what did he teach you as men? Um, show your class, have a plan, work hard, and uh, when your ribs are cracked and your finger is dislocated, uh, you put it back in place and you keep playing. Uh, there's no room for quitting. And his theory was if he could make you quit on Tuesday, you would quit on Saturday. And to be honest, Saturday was the easiest day of the week because uh, getting prepared for Saturday. But I think the very first meeting he set the tone. He said, quote, don't show me how good you are. Don't prove to me what you've got. He said, just join us and let's win the national championship. And that was it. And we lost one regular season game in three years. We won the national championship my senior year. And uh, we have just been so very blessed to, to take many of the things he taught us and apply them now with our children and um, uh, mental, mental toughness. I mean, that's missing with a lot of kids today. And, and, and I know Brody's on the phone with us, but uh, he's mentally the toughest man I know. And uh, I have just watched him in his whole career. And I learned a lot of that from my dad and from Coach Bryant. Well, hold that thought, John. And when we come back, more on this remarkable father-son story about male mentorship and about so much more. This is Lee Habib, John and Brody Croyle for the hour. A remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Coral. And we were talking about male mentorship. We were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. 
And John, you had uh, just been talking about Bear Bryant. I remember you telling me a story once about Bear Bryant saying that in, in the end, life comes down to a few key plays. Talk about that, because I think it's so important, not just metaphorically for football, but I think in all of life. You know, Lee, um, before every ball game, 36 times I heard him say, in this game, there's going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of the ball game. You may be the hero, you may be the coach, but rest assured the plays are coming. And there's people listening to the three of us right now. And if I or you or Brody were to say, name five plays that changed your life, every adult can go to those five plays right now with no hesitation. Some are positive, some are negative. But we've all got those plays. And, and for me, uh, just it's just been a series of plays where, and and I, I hope that you know uh, I come across the right way with this, but God's got a plan for all of us. And if we'll just listen and listen carefully, and then follow that plan, everything's going to be just fine. And um, that's one of the things we learned. And, and when I was 19, one of the plays in my life was just meeting a little boy whose mother was a prostitute. And he was the banker and the timekeeper for his mom. And I told that little boy he could become a Christian. He came back the following year and told me word for word what I taught him the summer before. And I realized at 19, I had been given a gift. And I know it is rare to know why you got put on earth at 19, but it just worked out perfectly, and then Coach Bryant was instrumental in getting us to build a home for children, and 2,000 children have benefited from what he and my dad have taught in me. Well, it's interesting, you know, when in your, you're in your senior year, here's Coach Bryant, who's legend for sending boys to the NFL, and you have this crisis. You're not sure you want to go to the NFL, and if you do, you're only going for the money because you want to help kids. You want to work at a ranch or something. You have something in your head that says... God's gifted me with this. And talk about that moment with Bear, because you're seeking his guidance, John. You're seeking his mentorship. And what happens on that? that, I think that's one of the big plays in your life, too. It must be. What does Coach tell you, and what happens next? Uh, Very simply put, um, leadership is simple. Uh, you got to know where you're going, and you're able to persuade people to go with you. And he had that in loads. I mean, just dripping out of his nose. And I went to see him and said, Coach Bryant, I'd like to get the money to throw ball and start a home for children. And he looked at me and did not hesitate. He said, don't play pro ball unless you're willing to marry it. He said, go build that ranch you've been talking about. I walked out of his office and never looked back. And I say this with all humility, Lee. I, I have never been depressed. I've been mad, angry, tired, exhausted filled with anger. I mean, I've been all those, but I've never been depressed because uh, I'm running on the road that he and others have helped build. Yeah, and it was interesting. You you know, you went, you must have left that office thinking, okay, I'm going to start a ranch. How do I do that? How do I do that? And yet, in came, John, in came the love. I mean, in came money for you to support that vision. Some from some local businessmen. Talk about one guy who really stepped up, a guy you played some ball with in Alabama went on to be, well, in the Hall of Fame. All right. Uh, John Hanna, he and I came into Alabama as freshmen, and uh, he is, by many standards, the best offensive lineman to ever play in the NFL. As a matter of fact, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And John had a tremendous career, and um, he and I met just before I was getting ready to get started with the ranch, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm raising support to build this home for children. He said, tell you what, uh, what do you need? I said, 30. He said, well, that's my bonus for that year in 1974. 
and he gave us his bonus, and we took that money and started Big Oak Ranch, and uh, he's been a friend for a long time, and he jumped in when a lot of people didn't want to. Um, so we have just been so very, very blessed. And that first year, we took his money and another friend, purchased the land, and I'm literally sitting in the yard, and I just said, Lord, I'm willing. And uh, that's all God wanted to hear, and the rest is history. Yep, and the rest is history. And and Brody, you know, you grew up uh, around this guy, this this John Crawl. Uh, talk about your dad, and and don't blush, John, and maybe you need to even turn it off for a minute. But Brody, tell <laughs> tell tell the country about your relationship with your dad, you growing up. What did you see? How is your life different than some of the other boys you knew? Tell me about your early life, Brody, and, and what, what it was like growing up on a ranch like the Big Oak Ranch, which, by the way, folks, is in Gadsden, Alabama, a beautiful place to live. Well, uh, the best way that I know how to explain it is actually a story that goes with my son and the birth of my first son. And I'm sitting there, and he's now five years old. And you know how it is when you have a baby, and everybody comes in, and they're all excited, and they're gushing about how pretty he is and how, which, you know, it's got to be a lot sometimes because there's some newborns that just, man, they just got a, just a goofy look about them. <laughs> but, uh, but mine, of course, was not. Right, but, uh, I'm just kidding. But, uh, he, uh, he came in, and he was the last one to come in. And uh, he had kind of let everybody else like he does and like he was raised by his dad and, uh, we all try and follow suit. You know, you let everybody else go first, and you, you're the last one. And uh, so he was the last one to kind of come in and uh, do all that and get to hold his grandson. And uh, he had something in his pocket, and uh, he handed me something. And, I, you know, like your dad's giving you something for the first time. You know, as a first-time dad, you're kind of expecting this, that, or other, and it's a compass. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, well, all right, Dad, well, thanks for the compass. He goes, you know what it is? I was like, not really. He said, it's called a lensatic compass. And basically what it is, back in World War I, uh, back before all this technology and everything, the commander would call in, and he would call, or the general would call in, and he would tell his captains, all right, I want you to go 110 by 100 degrees north, northeast. I want you to find your mark. And you could take that compass and you could lock it in on that mark. And no matter which way you spun, no matter how lost you got, you could always find your true north. And uh, he said, and you get to that spot and you wait for the next instruction. And he said, he said, bud, you're entering into being a dad. He said, uh, never lose sight of your true north. He said, always understand what your true north is. He said, there's going to be a lot of seasons. There's going to be a long journey. He said, but always stick to your true north and what that true north lies in. He said, and if you do that, he said, I'm going to go to your boy in 18 years. He said, I'm going to go to Sawyer, and I'm going to say, Sawyer, who's the godliest man that you know? And he said, buddy, if you stay to that true north, he said, he's going to look me dead in the eyes, and he's going to say, my daddy's the godliest man that I know. And I tell you that story to tell you that, uh, my dad is the godliest man that I know, and it is because he always stuck to his true north. It is because he never wavered. He was always the same man every single day. And I always tell people the best way to learn is to watch, and I got to literally watch the best, and he and my mom live it every single day. That's a beautiful story, Brody. And you grew up on the ranch, didn't you? Talk about that. You're around all these kids, and now you've got to be, in a sense, the true north to them, don't you? Uh, you know what? Growing up, uh, I was just one of the boys, and that's 
I literally went straight from the hospital to the ranch. Yep. It was the only life that I ever knew, and those were my brothers, and those were my sisters at the girls' ranch, and they were no different than me. The only difference is that I had my real mom and dad, and my, my parents raised me to look at it that way, and I now live at the ranch with my two boys, and they have 70 brothers that live here with them and 70 sisters at the girls' ranch, and they're looking at it the exact same way. And you know what? That is a, uh, that's a great perspective that, um, you know, our, my parents instilled in me and my sister and our family is that, you know what? We're very blessed that, uh, because we get to see the other side of it. And we get to see the parents that didn't want the job. We get to see the parents that struggle with different things and can't handle uh, taking care of their own children. And uh, the awesome, awesome part is that God's called us, that we get to play a small role and get to fill that void and bridge that gap. So uh, all these kids and, you know, the 140 we take care of on a daily basis and the 2,000 that have been here now know what family looks like because God placed a calling on a man's life 43 years ago. Well, what a blessing that you followed in your dad's footsteps. You know, you went into the NFL, Brody, and a lot of guys go into the NFL and the North Star becomes, well, you know what the North Star becomes for guys in the NFL. And yeah. it's, it's tragic. And it's sad. If you don't, if you get that much money, that young, and that much fame, well, life gets difficult. On the other side, we're going to take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation with Brody and then bring back John because I want to have the story told of how this place, the Big Oak Ranch, got formed and more importantly, how it evolved from a place for boys to a ranch for girls. This is Lee Habib, an extraordinary father-son story, one of my favorites, and we spend a lot of time on the subject, folks. John Croyle, Brody Croyle, for the hour. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with John and Brody Coyle. And Brody, we were just talking about the NFL. I had just, you know, talked a bit about it. And, you know, you, you were there. You were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, my goodness, as a young man. And, and then you find yourself in the NFL. Talk about how important it was to have a dad like you had and that North Star that you had in your head. And, and I believe also this, this relationship you had with God. How did that help protect you from many of the Let's just say the trappings that can come with instant fame and a whole lot of cash, Brody. Uh, well, you know, growing up the way that I grew up and growing up grounded the way that I grew up obviously helped. But you know what? Uh, no one is above uh, getting sucked in by that. No one is above uh, the lifestyle that comes with that. And I'm no different, you know, and honestly, I mean, I didn't do a lot of the things and end up in the media and in the news for doing, but you know what, when I was 11 years old, I walked in to uh, actually my parents' room, and I never played one down of organized football. And I walked in, I looked at them, I said, I'm going to play in the NFL. 
and versus telling me, hey, buddy, why don't we worry about making the JV squad or something like that? <laughs> yeah. They uh they said shoot for the moon, man. Worst case scenario, we'll end up in the stars. And uh, I'm ashamed to say, to a fault, football became my god at that point in time. Now, don't get me wrong. I could I could say all the right things and I could do all the right things, and maybe in my mind, I thought that I still had my priorities straight. But football became my god. It's all I chased. Uh, and you know, honestly, I've heard some the other day. If guy's not first on your list, he's not on your list. So. Uh, I fell victim to that, and I chased it, and I loved everything that went along with it. But we always talk about, you know, at the ranch, if you know who you are, you know what you are, and you know why you're here, then God will honor that, and you'll, you know why you're put on earth and what your purpose is. And uh, I had a foundation that I always knew what to come back to. And uh, I was blessed. I have a godly wife, and I have a godly family that, uh, literally lived it every day and uh, let me watch. And uh, that foundation and that um, uh, just loving spirit and that knowing where you come from. I mean, I've, I've had 11 surgeries. I've had three broken vertebras. I've had dislocated ribs. I've had broken ribs. I've had dislocated jaws. I was always too small to play football. I was just too stupid to understand it. Uh, so I always knew what the other side looked like that a lot of people don't get to see on the glamour part of it. Yep. But at the same point in time, every time I'd have a setback, every time I'd have a bump in this journey, that was God obviously getting my attention saying, Hey, shift it back to me, bud. come on back to me. But there was also where I grew up. I'd sit there and, you know, I'd feel sorry for myself for a little bit. And, uh, literally a couple of days into it, I could sit there and go, I got six months of rehab. And I got boys and girls that I grew up with. They're literally just trying to put the pieces of their life back together. And it always put it back into perspective for me. Yeah, and we all need it. We, I don't know how anybody – actually, frankly, I don't know how people live without it or get through without it. John, let's go back now. You, you, you've approached Bear Bryant. You've gotten this help to start a ranch. But you don't know what, what the heck you're doing. I mean, you have maybe some vision in your head. Some might say still doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> some might. Some might. So you, you stumble out there. How do you find your first kids? What do you do? Tell the story of that first year, that first two, of just getting it going. And, and talk about the self-doubt for all the folks out there who have doubts. And I, don't, I think it's the most human thing in the world to have doubts. The key is how you fight through those doubts. You have fears. How do you fight through those fears? Talk about all of that if you can, John. To be blunt, uh, we purchased the land, and uh, I was sitting in the front yard with my dog, and that was all we had was a 120-acre ranch, a 1,200-square-foot farmhouse, and within two weeks, we had five boys. We got one out of a boxcar at a uh, tire company. We got one out of a barn. We got one out of a home in New Orleans. We got one out of a um, home up in Boston, Massachusetts that he set fire to. I mean, we had five boys in two weeks. And one thing I've learned and, and, and our family believes, attempt something so great for God that it's destined for failure unless he is in it. And based upon that, I was just stupid enough to say, come on, God, let's go. I, I'm willing. And uh, that first boy is now 61 years old, and he's a grandfather. And um, one, of the, one of the things that really worked, and, and I'm going to kind of toss it back a minute, is 
Uh, I looked at my wife the other day, and uh, I said, you know what I told somebody today? And she said, what? I said, somebody asked me what you were like. And she said, what would you tell them? I said, my wife thinks I can do anything. And uh, that kind of support is the reason Brody is where he is, you are, I am, any man that's made it. He's got that, that core belief that his mate's right there with him fighting the fight. And uh, my wife has known this, and then Brody's wife jumped in, and the best line I've ever heard my daughter-in-law say is when he told her he wanted to go back to the ranch, and she said, tell me when, and I'll have us packed. Wow. Now, how many, how many 22-, 23-year-old kids that have been married for you know just a short period of time look at their husband and say, you tell me when, I'm in. Well, wow. uh, that's strong. And as a matter of fact, if anything ever happens to Kelly and Brody, I don't care where he goes. Kelly's coming home with me, <laughs> so uh, it's all good. Now, talk about he your, means that too. Talk about your bride, because here you are. You're on the cusp of. I mean, you could have gone into the NFL. You could have done a lot of things with your life, and you're sitting there with this dream in your head. Talk about you know first sharing that with her. And did she look at you like you were crazy? Um, did she say I'm in? Did she have the same faith you had about this vision? Real quickly, um, uh, I asked her to marry me on the boys' ranch, and I said, I love you, will you marry me, and we're going to have 80 boys. She said, let's go through them one at a time. And uh, we went through them again, and uh, she said something about three years ago that just nailed me. Uh, I'd always said, I got chosen to do this. She chose to come do it, and she had a choice. And uh, anyway, she looked at me about three years ago. She said, did it ever cross your mind maybe I was chosen too? <laughs> I picked up my legs. I picked up my heart. I busted. Thinking, uh, busted. Major busted. <laughs> major that, busted. And uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, she, she's had every reason to just tell me goodbye. But uh, she's been here 42 years, and uh, we're where we are now because of Brody's mama. But, Brody, let's talk about your mom. Uh, because John just talked about his bride, but talk about your mom and the role she's played in your development and how it's helped you in some ways to even choose your wife. Because in the end, if we see what a mom looks like, then this informs us when we go to choose our wives. It's just funny you say that. That's why Dad and I both are laughing. Because, uh, one, my mother, my mother is just, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, just to keep the doors open, uh, I mean, Dad would speak, you know, 300 times a year. So, I mean, he was on the road a lot. And uh, so my mother is a strong, strong woman that uh, is just a godly woman that uh, she is a calculus teacher. And there she won, so she's typically smarter than you and everything. And then secondly, there is no gray. You're either right or you're wrong. <laughs> so uh, there was never any uh, talking her into anything. You're either right or you're wrong. And uh, my mother is just a great, great woman. But we we both giggled because uh, there's so many things. I mean, like all of us, that we grow up and we go, man, I'm definitely not going to marry somebody like that. Like the things that get on your nerves about your mom or your dad, and you're sitting there and going, man, there's no way. I can't wait. And then I married someone who is exactly like her, like carries herself the same way, has the same fiery spirit, the same will put you in your place in a heartbeat. And uh, I honestly, I couldn't be more blessed. And my two little boys couldn't be more blessed because of the precedent that my mother set and honestly the precedent that uh, my wife's family set. And uh, now my boys get to grow up and have the same 
uh, characteristics in a godly woman. And like you said, now they understand and they get to look for because they get to watch every day. And then one day, uh, I pray that they marry somebody just like their mama and just like their grandmama because uh, those are two great women. We're talking to John and Brody Croyle. And when we come back, a final segment with this remarkable father-son team, this remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Quarrel, and we were talking about male mentorship, we were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. When we do father-son segments, uh, one of the things we've learned about fatherlessness is not just the impact it has on boys, their propensity to join gangs, their propensity for jail, for drug abuse, for violence, uh, and we know why that happens. We're guys. But what happens to women without fathers is a tale that's not told often enough. And so, John, ultimately, you had this uh, big oak ranch for boys. Tell the story that got you to think about something special for those girls. Uh, one of the plays of my life, I was walking down the hallway of a court, and I glanced down. I was walking with a social worker, and uh, there was a little 12-year-old girl sitting there. She had honey blonde hair that was really dirty. And uh, she looked up, and she had beautiful, beautiful, sad green eyes. And she had been raped by her father while her mother held her down. And uh, we do what we do for a living. And, and our family, we can spot an abused child about a mile away. And uh, that's all we've known. And uh, I just glanced down at her, and um, I, I picked her up. And I remember uh, they'd had to do a hysterectomy to put her back together. And uh, she was just destroyed. And uh, I told the judge, if you send her back home, the father will do it again and kill her in six months. I was wrong. Uh, he did it in three months and killed her. And I promised God that when the time was right, we'd build a home for girls. So there's that anchor in the ground, that stake that will not move. And uh, that's why now we have a 325-acre ranch in Springville. And uh, there's uh, approximately 70 girls living there that are getting a chance at life. And we're trying to explain it. I'm, I'm going to quote I'm gonna quote Brody on this one when he says, we show girls what a real family and a real mom and dad look like and what a real father figure looks like and uh, that is just so essential and there's women listening to us right now that would give anything they own to have their dad just look at them as they were going up and said you know what you're my princess and you're the most beautiful little girl i've ever seen and i love you they've never heard that and they are literally scarred for life and when they marry it takes a special man to lift them out of that dungeon of uh, self-doubt and self-confidence. And um, that's just what we've seen. And now when I see Brody walk in and a little girl runs up and hugs his neck, and he just uh, looks at her and says, as long as we breathe, no one's ever going to ever hurt you like that again. That's a very good day. That's a great day. And, you know, I, I have a bride who, who whose mom worked real hard, but she was a single mom, and my bride was vulnerable, and, and she fell into sexual abuse with a, a man in the family who 
just took advantage of the opportunity. And it, it cost my wife dearly and, uh, in the end, scarred her in ways that, you know, to this day, it, it still lingers. And she talks routinely with young, young women about this and older women about the impact of not having a father present. Um, and the sexual abuse part, uh, the guys, as you well know, because this is what your life is, the numbers are off the charts. Why do you think it is? What are the women looking for because of that absent father? What do you think is actually going on psychologically with these kids? Brody, you want to take that? The reason that we say, if you hadn't ever seen it, how are you ever going to repeat it? And uh, the thing that is so, it, Dad always told me, he said, the hardest thing you're going to be able to have to do, he says, when a little girl comes up and she thinks, she doesn't even know who God is. We had somebody the other day that was doing a devotion. One of our house dads was doing a devotion with his kids and uh, with his and. One, he's like, man, I felt like I just, I was so prepared and I was so ready and I was ready for this devotion. And man, he's like, I was teaching calculus. And he said, we had a new boy and literally I'm halfway through the devotion and the boy looks at me and he goes, who's Jesus? He's like, it was the biggest slap in the face to me because he's like, I had no clue because I just assumed. And we have girls that go, so this Jesus you're talking about, um, He's everywhere, right? Sure is, baby. He's all. He's got a great plan for everybody's life. Sure does, baby. Well, where was he when my dad was hurting me? And that's a hard, hard question that, honestly, we on this earth probably don't have the answer to. Right. But the best way that I know how to tell you of what God can do and how God can, I mean, he obviously uses us and uses uh, his children has lights for him and the best way for our kids to understand the love of a father and the love of their creator and the love of their father is to see it through their parents and unfortunately I mean, we had a little girl that was from the time she was five until she was 15 she was raped every single day by her dad and that was the life that she knew and i got to sit there and i got to look at that little girl and i got to make her the same four promises that my dad has made for the past 40 years and i got to look at her and i got to say baby i love you I don't want anything in return. Just give us an opportunity to earn your love back. I said, I'll never lie to you. Anybody sitting in this room and in that room would be me, my sister, my dad, the director, the social worker, the house parent, anybody that's going to have an integral part in her life is going to be in that room. It's like if anyone in this room lies to you, they're fired on the spot. Do you understand? She's like, mm-hmm. I said, we'll stick with you till you're grown. We, this coming fall, we'll have 25 kids in college. And said, whatever it is you want to do in life, we want to help you get there. I said, in four, there's boundaries, don't cross them. She went, all right. I said, baby, you get a fifth promise. And Dad said it earlier, and I, I just looked at her, and I said, baby, as long as I breathe, nobody's ever going to hurt you like that again. Do you understand me? And she went, okay. And uh, some kids literally get it instant. Some kids that are abused, especially girls, will just, it's like, here, you take this. Get it off of me. Uh, and they will spill everything just to say, you know, it's off me now, and Thank you. Some kids, it takes years. Some kids, we don't ever get to see the fruit. And uh, But you know what? That's okay. And for a year and a half, this girl fought. And, man, she pushed. And she just pushed her house parents to the brink every day, made sure that everything that I had told her was we were going to hold up our end of the bargain because everybody in her life had let her down because she had had that trust muscle ripped out of her so many times by the man that was supposed to protect her. And literally, 
after a year and a half, she went up to her house, Dad, the same man that the first week she was there and they had got through having dinner, she walked up to him and goes, is this when we go have sex now? Because that's the only life that she had ever known. She finally, she told, she finally told us, she said, I started to say yes just where it wouldn't hurt so bad where I didn't feel like I was getting raped. And after a year and a half, she went up to that same man and she said, I don't know what it is you got, she said, but I want it. And they got to share with her how to become a Christian, how to change her life. And why do I tell you that story? Is because he showed her the love of a father. And she finally understood that, you know what, that man that used to do that to me and that man that used to hurt me and that man that pushed me to the brain, that man that made me question life and who I was and if I wanted to continue it, now she's gotten a year and a half with a godly man showing her what a father and what a father's love is supposed to look like. And because of that, she's now going to spend eternity in heaven because she now can understand the love of a father in heaven. Uh, that is a good day. And that is uh, what we get to do on a daily basis. And people have said, you know, well, what if y'all would take Christian out of your name? What if they push you to take Christian out of your name? And you know what? That day might be coming that they try to push us to do that. And they say, well, you know, we'll take away your 501c3. We'll do that unless y'all have Christian out of your name. You know what? We know that there is no change uh, without God Almighty. And uh, we know there is no change without that Christian thing. We know there is no change without showing the love of a uh, father, which then they can understand what they were put on life for. And uh, unfortunately, the abuse and the... um, level of abuse and level of sexual abuse is getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, But that's what we get to do, and that's the kids that we get to help. And uh, people ask me all the time now, where do you see the ranch going? I say, man, I'd love for us to be out of business in 20 years. That would be amazing. That means no kids are getting hurt. That means no kids are seeing pain. That means no kids are getting raped by their fathers. But unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. And uh, we will continue to uh, just follow that lead and follow God's lead and uh, continue to offer uh, what he intended for a family to be. Well, and as I told you guys during the break, uh, and Brody, and, and I thank your dad for this, um, because of these stories, I had not been a believer. I, was, I had a child, and I needed something more than what my dad taught me. He was not a believer. And uh, ultimately, witnessing the power of love, the inexplicable power that could have come from no other source. It led me to Christ myself, and uh, and we don't get that personal on the show. I don't tend to share my own views, but on this one, I I have no other option. And I just want to thank you, John, for what you did for me, what you've done for all these kids, and and what you've done uh, for 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 God. Because in the end, you're serving Him, doing what you do. And it must have just tickled you, John, to hear your son telling that story. It is, and uh, my wife and I every morning we wake up we pinch ourselves of how blessed we are and um i i want to say this to anybody who listen to us you can't be bad enough that god won't come get you and you can't run far enough away that his hand is not on the other side trying to pull you back home so we've all been there and nobody's got it going on but the neat thing about it is lee you me brody our family we will spend the rest of eternity together and uh i saw an atheist i met and he just said, well, I don't believe in God. That's okay. You're going to meet him one day. And so it's all good. And so we're just blessed that you let us be a part of what you're sharing with the nation. 
Well, thank you guys both, and I'm going to get out and visit you, I promise, and it'll happen in the next 30 days, and I look forward to seeing you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lee. That was great. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. John and Brody Coral. We've had them for the hour, and my goodness, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. stories and we love to tell stories about music we also love to do this days in history and today well the two segments the two ideas converge around the same time that Jimi hendrix released electric ladyland and johnny cash was recording at Folsom prison a pale skinny guitar player by the name of johnny winter was kicking up dust in texas with his debut album from 1968 called progressive blues experiment the track you're listening to right now Bad Luck and Trouble, perhaps a fitting title for the story about to unfold. On this day in history, Johnny Winter was born. Johnny Winter was an American musician, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer. Best known for his high-energy blues rock albums and live performances in the late 60s and 70s. Winter also produced three Grammy Award-winning albums for blues singer and guitarist Muddy Waters and recorded several Grammy-nominated albums. In 1988, he was inducted into the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame and in 2003, ranked 63rd in Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. In a documentary about the last two years of his life called Johnny Winter, Down and Dirty, we join the legendary guitar player in his living room, somewhere deep in the heart of Connecticut, where he's listening to Robert Johnson on the record player. That is so good. 
I couldn't believe when I first heard Robert Johnson. Uh, nobody can play flat that good. I learned a lot of stuff from listening to his records. His face worn and tired from an entire life lived on the road. Yep, Bob, if you please. He lights up with a pale grin ear to ear when he hears the sound of the great Robert Johnson. Try to flag a ride. His recording career began at the age of 15 when his band Johnny and the Jammers released School Day Blues on a Houston record label. Uh, Cream did a version of this, but it wasn't near as good. (laughs) Wasn't even close. It was during this time period he was able to see performances by classic blues artists such as Muddy Waters, B.B. King, and Bobby Bland. Every blues player in the world does Robert Johnson songs. He was just the best. Gary, Gary Clapton loves him. You can't not love Robert Johnson. If you like blues, you're going to like Robert. Johnny Winter was a performer until his dying day on July 16, 2014, at the age of 70 on the road in Zurich, Switzerland, just two days after his last show at a blues festival in France. Here he is performing behind the mic in his Stanford, Connecticut studios in 2013. Johnny Winter was born in Beaumont, Texas on February 23, 1944. He and his younger brother Edgar, who was born in 46, were nurtured at an early age by their parents in musical pursuits. When he was just 10 years old, the brothers appeared on a local children's television show with Johnny playing the ukulele. Here's Johnny and his brother Edgar talking about being musically gifted at such an early age. Johnny and I started out as kids, playing ukuleles and singing Everly Brothers songs, like uh, Wake Up Little Susie and Hey Bird Dog. My father was very musical. He sang and played banjo and saxophone. He teach me songs from the 20s and 30s. They quickly realized that Johnny and I were special, and they encouraged us. I was in the church choir. I kicked out because I was singing too loud, and I said, I'm not singing too loud. These other are singing way too quiet. You can't even hear them. So I quit. Both Johnny and his brother Edgar were born with albinism, a congenital disorder characterized by the complete or partial absence of pigment in the skin, hair, and eyes. Here, Johnny talks about what it was like being so different from everyone else growing up. I was legally blind. I had like 20, 2,400 in one eye and 2,600 in the other eye instead of 2,020. Well, I was probably seven or eight. Somebody in the neighborhood said, you're an albino. And I said, no, I'm not. And I went home and asked my mother, am I an albino? She said, yes, yeah, you are. I'd never heard the word till then. I knew that I didn't look like anybody else. I just didn't know there was a word for it. I, some kids didn't like it. Some kids just didn't like it because I was different. I got in fights. In elementary school, I got in a lot of fights. Somebody would tease me and I'd hit them. It's stupid. Just because you're a different color, they don't like you. They don't like black people because they're black. They didn't like me because I was too white. It's just stupid. In 1968, he recorded his first album, The Progressive Blues Experiment, on Austin's Sonabeat Records. And when we come back, legendary guitar picker Johnny Winter gets his first big break. This Day in History, as always, brought to you by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can always get to you with their terrific online courses. There are over a dozen there now. 
The one on C.S. Lewis is terrific. More on the life of Johnny Winter after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about Johnny Winter, who was born on this day in history in 1944. You're listening to his live performance from Woodstock with Mean Town Blues. When we left off, Johnny was about to make it to the big leagues and music fame. Come back to Dallas. Johnny Winter caught his first big break in December of 1968 when Mike Bloomfield, who he met in Chicago, invited him to sing and play a song at the Fillmore East in New York City. Rolling Stone magazine had just ran a piece on Winter also, so that didn't hurt. As it happened, representatives of Columbia Records were at the concert. Winter played and sang B.B. King's It's My Own Fault to loud applause and within a few days was signed to what was reportedly the largest advance in the history of the recording industry at the time. $600,000. $600,000. Here's Johnny Winter. December of 68, the Rolling Stone article came out, and all of a sudden everything just completely changed. We were only making about 50 bucks a week at the time, and I'd been making like $150, $200 a week playing nightclubs. But when we started doing the blues thing, we couldn't make near as much money at it. And the article came out, and everything completely changed. People were calling me from both coasts. Steve Paul called me from New York and wanted to come down and meet me. And I said, sure. Electra wanted us, Atlantic wanted us, Columbia wanted us. Steve just decided Columbia would be the best deal. And here's legendary record producer Clive Davis talking about signing Winter to Columbia Records. I would say that Johnny got a real good deal, uh, higher than the norm at that time without question. Uh, definitely believe from me that it, that he would not be a one-hit wonder. There was no hits to speak of. The hit, the criterion of hits, was not applicable in this case. What we had here was a dazzling virtuoso guitarist with a unique story to tell, certainly a unique look. I was very proud, I remember, to sign Johnny. Winter's first Columbia album, titled Johnny Winter, was recorded and released in 1969. The album featured a few selections that became Winter's signature songs, including his composition Dallas, an acoustic blues on which Winter played a steel-bodied resonator guitar, John Lee's Sonny Boy Williamson's Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, and B.B. King's Be Careful with a Fool. That's 
same year, the Winter Trio toured and performed at several rock festivals, including Woodstock. With his brother Edgar added as a full member of the group, Winter also recorded his second album in Nashville, 1969. The two-record album, which only had three recorded sides, the fourth was blank, introduced a couple more staples of Winter's concerts, including Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good and Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. Also at this time, Johnny entered into an intimate, albeit short-lived, affair with Janis Joplin, which culminated in a concert at New York's Madison Square Garden, where Johnny joined her on stage to sing and perform. I just had to get on the Texas Here's Johnny and Edgar Winter's childhood guitar teacher, Luther Nally, who explains how difficult it can be to instruct a young musician who's so naturally talented. When uh, uh, Johnny was in taking, taking lessons, I'd show him things like... You know, honky-tonk and stuff like that. So they use a thumb pick, uh, Chet Atkins... play the rhythm and the melody at the same time. And Johnny could do that. Edgar was playing guitar, too. And for a while, I had them both at the same time. And I'd show them things they could play together. Music is all what Johnny was, you know. He just lived and breathed that guitar. In fact, I was, at one point, I ran out of things to show him because, you know, he would just suck up everything just like a sponge. Uh, that I would show him, and I said, my gosh, what, what am I going <laughs> what, what to do with him today? Next, we're treated to Johnny Winter talking about and playing what he loves the most, his very first Gibson Firebird guitar. Well, it came from Ed Seeling in St. Louis. He brought one out to me, and I thought it looked cool, and it sounded cool, and played good, so I bought it. $225. That's all it cost him back then. Of course, that was in 1970. But that's the coolest looking guitar I've ever seen. I went down to Eli's to get my pistol out of pawn. And when I got home, my baby had been gone. I said, I'm going to marry my baby. If she don't stop, she'd do that. I love playing guitar. It's the only thing I've ever really been great at. <laughs> Winter's momentum was throttled when he sank into heroin addiction. Here's Winter talking candidly about this time in his life. I got it, first got it at a press, uh, press party in Los Angeles. Guy said, Do you do drugs? And I said, Sure. And he, Have you ever done heroin? And I said, No, I haven't. And he said, Well, take some of this. It's the only time anybody gave me any free heroin. So then we, I kept it three or four months. And we were supposed to do a show in New Jersey. Our equipment didn't get there. We were all kind of depressed. And I said, Well, this seems like a good time to try that heroin. We all sniffed it. And I couldn't believe it. You just don't worry about anything. Nothing bothers you. But I really thought I could just use it and just do it when I want to and not get addicted. But all only stupid people get addicted. And I thought I was cool enough to be able to just use it. Johnny Winter would then experience an overdose on heroin. Nobody can control heroin. 
<laughs> well, I was over at Dunks in Austin once, and usually I'd let somebody else shoot up first to see what it did to them, but I really want to get high, and I overdosed. They threw me in a cold tub of water. I was turning blue. Red was hitting me, slapping me, trying to wake me up. That was the only time I overdosed. But he was afraid I was going to die. I didn't even know that I was, that it was, I was all messed up. When I woke up, I was just pissed off because it got my velvet shirt wet. I said, I was okay. He said, no, you weren't okay, man. You were going to die. And that kind of scared me. Scared straight after he sought treatment for and recovered from his heroin addiction, by 1973, Winter returned to the music scene with the release of his Still Alive and Well album, a basic blend between blues and hard rock. In live performances, Winter often told the story about how as a child, he dreamed of playing with the blues guitarist Muddy Waters. He got his chance in 1974 when renowned blues artists came together to honor Muddy Waters, who was responsible for bringing blues to Chicago in the first place. The resulting concert that was the start of an admired TV series called Soundstage. In 1977, Winter brought Waters into the studio to record Hard Again for Blue Sky Records, a label set up by Winter's manager and distributed by Columbia. Winter produced two more studio albums for Waters. The partnership produced three Grammy Awards for Waters and an additional Grammy for Winter's own Nothing But The Blues with backing by members of Waters' band. Johnny Winter continued to perform live, including at festivals throughout North America and Europe. He headlined events like the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, the Chicago Blues Festival, and many others. In 2007-2010, Winter performed at the Eric Clapton Crossroads Guitar Festivals before he passed away while on tour in 2014. In closing, Johnny Winter looks back on his life with only one regret. This is Our American Stories. Since I was 15... Started playing and made my first record when I was 15. Started playing clubs when I was 15. Started drinking and smoking when I was 15. 15 was a big year for me. <laughs> but it was fun. I'm, I wouldn't take anything back except the heroin. I wouldn't do that if I had it to do over. But I've been wanting to do this ever since I was like 12 years old. I was pretty sure that's what I wanted to do. I never wanted to do anything else. I didn't have a plan B. If I don't make it in music, then I'll do this. I knew, I always knew I was going to make it in music. I just was sure of it. I'm gonna have, I've had one of the best lives anybody could ever have. I've been able to do exactly what I wanted to do, get paid for it, have people love me for it. Uh, it's just great. It's been a great life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the story of the one and only Johnny Winter. All he ever wanted to do was rock, and that is all he ever did. An American classic, if ever there was one, on this day in history, Johnny Winter was born. And as always, our This Day in Histories, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on our show, we tell stories about everything from music to cars to sports, the American dream, periodically public policy. But we also like to talk about where and how Americans are living, where and when are they moving and why. And when we came across Joel Kotkin's book, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, it sparked a lively discussion, and we decided in our studio that we were going to drill down. We picked four or five books a year to drill down on, and one of them was Greg Ipp's terrific book, Foolproof, and he's the managing economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. And it was also all about risk and safety, and it was fascinating. We ended up doing a multi-part series, and we're about to do the same with Joel's book, and we welcome Joel to the show. Good to be here. You bet. And Joel, you heard Chicago coming in from Frank Sinatra. We wanted to start off. Chicago's population, uh, a couple of my guys here on research pointed out, is the same 2.7 million uh, today as it was in 1920. And Houston, uh, a city that generally sort of attacked for its ugliness and its sprawl and its lack of uh, unified zoning cohesion, is about to overcome Chicago. Uh, let's start there and talking about where people are moving from and to. Well, of course, you know the city limits are, are somewhat limited, but of course, what um, and that sort of that, today the vast majority of the population in virtually all the metropolitan areas is outside the city core or even the city limits. But look, the the reality is that Chicago, which has a very powerful PR machine, you know, gets very nice mentions, um, you know, fairly often is a city that essentially um, is, has lost its position as the business center or is certainly losing the position of, of, the, of the middle part of the country. That's really going, I think, fundamentally to Dallas. Uh, it's lost its manufacturing and industrial status largely to Houston. Um, and it's a city with a you know, very high crime rate. Um, it's... Uh, it's got terrible debt issues. I mean, Houston has its own debt issues, but not quite as bad as Chicago. Um, it's a city that's been terribly mismanaged for a very long time uh, and um, is clearly you know, not the city it was, certainly in 1920, and, and, and probably not the city it was in uh, 1960. I mean, it, is, it has been on a constant sort of gradual decline, even though at the same time, it's downtown is maybe the most beautiful in the country. There are neighborhoods in Chicago that you you would say these are the, some of the great neighborhoods in the United States, but they're also just huge expenses. You want to talk about ugly, huge expenses on the west side, on the south side, that are are horrific places and 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 with very very little hope um, and very high crime. So. Uh, you know, basically, what Houston has done is Houston has you know, got lower costs. It's been somewhat less corrupt um and uh, the other thing is that people continue to move to houston you know people will say well you know chicago's a great place and houston's a horrible place and how come people migrate to a horrible place and leave a wonderful place you would ask that question yep you would and, and by the way joel in a, in a piece i had written uh for national view called southern like me because i moved from new jersey to oxford mississippi and people in the north looked at me funny and i and they, particularly on the race issue, were looking at me funny. And I said, look, 
You know, there's this guy, Joel Kotkin, who's been keeping track of this, tracking census data, and more black people have now moved back to the South than escaped the South to move to the North in the 1940s and 50s. And if the South is such a racist, awful place, why are black people moving back to it? Uh, black people are human beings like everyone else, and think that they move for opportunity, and not just opportunity per se in terms of jobs, but a quality of life, what you can afford to have. Um, I mean, when you you know, I always get a kick out of this. That some of the cities that are most um, progressive, if you want to use that terminology, on race issue, you know, most sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, most uh, raging about uh, about Donald Trump's uh, you know, nativism and racism, which you know, which is something certainly the people should react against. But the, what they're in the cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Boston, all the cities that are actually having their own form of ethnic cleansing. The black and, in some cases, Latino populations are, are, are shrinking. In many cases, we're small to start with, um, as these cities have gentrified. So, you know, the, the, you know, you don't have a huge number of black people moving to Seattle. I mean, the, the way a place like Seattle or Portland um, uh, uh, runs, it just there is no real room for a, a black community. And I think African Americans and the ones I've spoken to, particularly in places like Houston, um, feel they feel at home. They feel this is where they were from originally. This is this is a place where uh, where you know the chance of owning a home is much much higher than it might be um, in in a place like New York or Los Angeles. And so that's why they're moving because you know they're not just moving from the Northeast; they're moving from California as well. Yep, yep, all over the country. And what's interesting is when I first got here, Joel. I was stunned at the level of integration here compared to New Jersey, which had some of the highest levels of segregation. I grew up there. There was one black family in my whole town in Bergen County, and all the black people lived in one place. All the white people lived in another place. And I go to a, I go to a school district where 35% of the kids are African-American or Hispanic, and the kids are together. And all through the state, you find that. And I think through the South, you find black and white living together in ways that you don't see in many other places, Joel. Well, there's, there's also, you know, there is a, you know, a, a, for all the, the nasty history, which is certainly there, yep. there's, there's, a, there's a cultural um, similarity. The, the music that, that people like, the food that they eat, the, the, the way they, they, they worship have tremendous uh, similarities. Um, that are very strong. You know, it's it, it's always funny when I when I would travel around the world and you'd go to places um, in uh, let's say in, in Asia where there were Indians and Pakistanis who would be at each other's throat at home. Right. But but when they're in a different environment, they say, well, you know, we we eat curry. We have the same. Right. We have you know a lot of the same history. And so I think that there's a there's a sense of, of being at home in the South. And you know, uh, at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, we did a study on um, on best cities for minorities, and, and and one of them was obviously African Americans. And what was funny is, thirteen of the fifteen best places for African Americans measured by the whole sense of a series of categories were in the old Confederacy. I just thought that was kind of ironic. Well, it's, it's, it's ironic, but yet for people who've lived here, they'll, they'll always say, look, the laws separated us. The Klan was here. It was horrible. But, you know, we knew each other. We really did know each other. And I think that, and, and as you said, that shared common culture is overwhelming. Um, but, you know, it, the more I get to spend time here, the more that doesn't only not surprise me. What surprises me is that no one knows this story in the country, Joel. 
It's a, I think it's one of the great untold stories in America. Well, I, I, I think that it's, be, you know, in part because, you know, prejudice comes in all different forms. And one of the prejudices are things that may have been true in 1965 or 1975, but you know, that's 40 years ago, are stuck in people's minds, you know, um, and, and they have a hard time changing them. You know, it's like views of the suburbs. The suburbs are X, Y, Z, you know, i.e., they're all white. They're, right. They don't allow blacks. They, right. Uh, they don't have any culture. The food is terrible. Well, a lot of that was true 40 years ago. But you know what? If you want a good Indian meal in Houston today, you go to Sugar Land. If you want to have good Vietnamese food in Southern California, you go to Orange County. Right. Um, because you know what? The immigrants, like the African-Americans who can do it, are moving to suburbs, and they want to move to nicer suburbs. They don't want to move to suburbs that maybe are right near the ghetto but are still very, um, very poor. Right. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion with Joel Kotkin, a book we love and that we're digging into, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're rejoined by Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, and he also happens to run a think tank, Center for Opportunity Urbanism, and that's based in Houston, Texas. Joel, thanks again for joining us. It's my pleasure. And Joel, a quick question on technology and the role it's playing in how and where we live, and, and also this idea of the of the arts and food moving out to places where people live. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about the role of technology in all this and how that relates to where and how Americans are moving and living. Well, one of the things that technology is allowing is for people to have access to information, culture, in a way that they didn't have if they were isolated, let's say, in a small town. I mean, you're in Oxford, Mississippi. If you're you're in Oxford, Mississippi. You get you can get the same bad programming from Hollywood that we get here in Southern California. Right. Um, you know, so those cultural gaps is sort of what the Karl Marx called the idiocy of rural life really doesn't exist anymore. So you you really have almost a more free flowing um, set of options for people. So one of the things that we're seeing is, for instance, among seniors um, and particularly the what we would call the young old the people in their late 50s, early 60s, uh, many of them, if, you know, they say, oh, they're moving back to the city. Actually, the numbers don't show that at all. Where they're moving, if anything, is further out or to small towns like Oxford. If you've got a little bit of scratch that you made in Houston and you want to, you know, you, you don't want to retire. You're not ready for a wheelchair, but, you know, you, you would like to live in a smaller town. Maybe in some cases you can go to a place that's a little bit less expensive. Um, 
and, and you want to slow things down. But because of technology, you're not cut off. You can still, if you're, if you're a financial trader, you can still do it. If you're a journalist, you can still write. Um, and so we really have, have sort of opened things up in ways that, that um, really weren't the case before. You know, I remember as a young kid driving from New York, where I grew up, um, across the country, and literally good coffee would stop in in Manhattan, and you didn't see another good cup of coffee practically till you got to San Francisco. Right. Maybe, you'd, maybe you'd get one in Chicago if you were lucky. Um, and now, I mean, as you know, as uh, I'm the president, and sometimes mediocre as let's say Starbucks is. Nevertheless, you can get a decent cup of coffee, you know, at at every truck stop in America. So, so you know, I think that 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 culture, information, food. I'm constantly astounded by um, how much you can get very good food, sometimes very fine dining, in cities that you never would have thought would have had such things. Um, so I think the options are growing. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is happening, and I talk about in the human city, is some of the great urban environments in America, let's say you know, New York City being the premier one, but you know, parts of Chicago, San Francisco, um, uh, are you know, parts of Seattle, but the but the problem is is that these places are extraordinarily expensive, and if you are not really rich and you have a family, they're almost out of the question. But now you can go to a Columbus, you can go to uh, a what we might call a second tier city, a Pittsburgh, or um, and certainly to a Dallas or a Houston, um, and. And actually have many of the same things that you used to only have in those in those very very elite environments. So there are now many more options, urban, suburban, and in the countryside than existed in the past. And by the way, a great thing for consumers and a great thing for the American people in the end, Joel. I think so. I think you know one of the big uh, points that I try to make in the human city, and something I think is, is something I talk about a lot, is we need to have more options. You know the. The sort of prevailing, if you say, New York Times version of the, of the universe is everything, you know, aspires to be Manhattan, or you aspire to be like, you know, Aspen. I mean, those are sort of the <laughs> right, things. right. And, and the reality is, most people can't afford and probably don't even want to live in Manhattan, particularly because you they can't live in Manhattan the way uh, Michael Bloomberg does. They they you know, living in Manhattan means living in a small apartment. Um, probably having to pay for private schools if you have kids. Um, it's not that pleasant if you don't have a lot of money. Um, there are now many options, and that's why I believe that the middle part of the country, you know, the central time zone, if you want to start that, mm-hmm. is really the one place where uh, upward mobility and the middle class can still have a middle class life. Having a middle class life in, let's say, Southern California, where I live, is incredibly difficult for young families. Um, the chance of buying a home, let's say here in Orange County, where houses seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for something even remotely acceptable. Well, how many people can break into that market? I mean, we we see here in our own neighborhood lots of kids in their twenties and thirties living in the homes owned by their parents yep. because they cannot afford. Whereas if you go to Dallas, you go to Houston, and certainly to many small towns, a, a, a young person who's earning. Uh, fifty thousand. Let's say um, their spouse is also you know, earning fifty thousand, a hundred thousand a year. Hundred thousand dollars a year buys you a pretty damn good lifestyle in suburban Houston or suburban Atlanta or suburban 
uh, Dallas, and it buys you nothing, basically. It buys you a third-world lifestyle in Southern California. Now, if you make $100,000, you're single, and you have two, two people making $100,000 with no children, they, they can live you know, a fairly nice life in Southern California. But once you decide to have a family, the whole equation changes. Indeed. You know, I was watching once with some friends from New York, uh, the Home Improvement Channel and the Gaines family, and they do fixer-uppers in Waco, Texas. And you see the price of a house, and it's a pretty nice house, and it's $150,000 or $125,000. And my friends in New York and New Jersey are going, oh, come on, that can't be. Where is this? And I'm going, Waco is a big town. It's not a little town. It's 125,000, 150,000 people, and it's growing. And this is why it's growing. Right, and, th- and this, is, this is something that, you know, I spent a, a good um well, I'd say 45 minutes with a reporter for the New York Times who quoted me in an article today, and he's a very nice guy and and, and fairly open-minded. But when I started to explain, well, well look, if these uh, dense urban environments that are very expensive were so preferable, then why are people moving to other places? I mean, if, if you know, there was another article also in the Times, you know, which is sort of the ideological center for this kind of thinking thing. Well, the best places are Massachusetts. You know, this is where everybody should be like Massachusetts. Well, okay, I'll tell you about Massachusetts. It's overwhelmingly white. You start there. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, very, it's getting very old. And guess what? People are leaving Massachusetts, and they're coming to Texas. So, in other words, you're telling me that they're leaving the great place and going to a crappy place. Um, I don't think people are as stupid as uh, as the media thinks they are. Well, I think some of the media actually do. I mean, I'll never forget reading Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas? And he was really saying, what's the matter with Kansans? Because they were, in his mind, voting against their political interests. And by the way, he wasn't accounting for cultural things. It was all economics to him. And meanwhile, he wasn't even examining economics properly and affordability and issues like that, let alone the culture. Um, but I actually think that people uh, on, on a particular part of the political spectrum, and I think this is the far left, actually, are now of the mindset that if you don't agree with them or you don't live like they do, you're crazy or stupid. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. Actually, in the book, I quote the, this magazine, the weekly magazine in, in Seattle called The Stranger, where they talk about, well, you know, all the good people are living in the dense urban centers and and the, and the people out in the countryside are fatter and stupider and, you know, you know less enlightened. And I'm saying, that, well, wait a minute. The way I was brought up, you know, being enlightened meant being tolerant and trying to understand people, not to dismiss them. I mean, yep. they don't even see it. So as, you know, as, as I was talking to this, this, this report from the Times, he said, the prejudice is so deep-seated that they don't even see it as prejudice. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have this kind of lack of, of understanding of really, you know, what our actions are and what we're really saying. So, you know, I mean, you can, you can, you can have people who will say people in the suburbs are dumb. People in the suburbs are, 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 or in small towns are, are evil and all this other stuff. But as you point out, very often those people have more day-to-day contact with people of other ethnicities and other classes than they would if they lived on the, uh, you know, on the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
And by the way, Joel, it assumes that these same people in these small towns, a guy like me who lived in Brooklyn and grew up right next to New York City and still loves New York and still loves to visit, actually chooses a place like Oxford. So I knew the difference. And how many Americans travel? I mean, there's a thing called a plane. They're smart enough to go to Broadway, see things they love, but come back to the place they want to live and raise a family. I'll give you about 30 seconds just to close out right here. And then we'll do this again next week, Joel. I love this subject. Well, I think basically, I think what you what you have to be, you know, very clear about is that, you know, people make choices, and what America really should be about is choices. We shouldn't be dragooned to live one way or another, um, and we we have different uh, ways of life that we have at different stages of our life, and we should be accommodating that. That's so true. When we when we rejoin you next week, we're going to dig into the different stages of life and where people are living and moving from, depending on how old they are and where they are in their life. We're talking to Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling your stories. And that's what this book is about. It's about you. It's about the American people, and this show is heard in big cities and small towns for just that reason. More after these messages. Just